0: Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, we are on week eight of church history. We are covering the Reformation today on Reformation Sunday um, by God's divine providence. It was not planned that way. As I start off every week on this day in church history, October 29th, eighteen. 37. Dutch theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper is born in Holland. He became so popular that on October 29, 1907, the whole nation celebrated his 70th birthday, declaring, quote, the history of the Netherlands in church, in state, in society, in press, in school, and in the sciences the last 40 years cannot be written without the mention of his name on almost every page. So if you know about Kuyper and his influence on um, society in the Dutch world and in the Reform world, well, he was born on this day. I might cover him in a little bit, but we'll see. But today we are covering the Reformation. So I'm sure most of us know the Reformation the best out of all of church history. So today will probably be a great refresher, and if you don't, you'll learn something new. I will go through Luther, of course, and some of the Reformers, and one Reformer who you probably have not heard of or do not know as much about as Luther and the others, but that you probably should. So let me start off with prayer, and then we will get into it. Lord, uh, I thank you for your church. I thank you how you continue to build it. Again, I thank you that we can look back, um, see the providence you've worked in your church and throughout history, even with uh, sinners, but sinners who turn to you because of your grace. We pray that we remember that, that uh, it's you who dispenses grace to us for your glory and for our good. We ask that you be with us this morning as we look to study your church. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we will start with Luther. So, he was born on November 10th, 1483. His father had worked very hard for his son and sacrificed much because he wanted his son to have a very well education in law. And Luther actually finished his master's in law when he was caught in a storm. So, I'm sure, we know this story. Um, he's caught in a violent storm, he's almost struck by lightning. And uh, he cries out for help to St. Anne. And he says, spare me and I will become a monk. So he gets through the storm and becomes a monk. Unfortunately, though, his father was not very pleased with this because Luther is now giving up his law education and degree. And so there would be conflict between him and his father for quite a long time. Have any of you seen the Luther movie that came out? So they they delve into that a little bit. Um, Luther, though, while a monk, he was very aware of his sins against God. In his mind, he could never be good enough, and he always feared damnation. Um, and so, at this time, the church has the sacrament of penance. And so, in order to gain God's forgiveness, you have to do something. You don't. It's you don't repent. You have to do something. That's therefore it's called penance. And so. Luther would do all these things and then he would go and do them and still feel like he was judged and under damnation. And so he really, really struggled with his sins. So much so that um, the his leader, the monk, the leader in the monastery said, Luther, why don't you actually go commit a real sin, something so bad that you could actually have something to do penance for. It was kind of a joke, but the point was that um, Luther was so sensitive to... Um, his understanding of sin and how wicked he was. Um, so his priest, whatever, told Luther to actually go and study uh, theology. But this occurred after he visited Rome on a trip that his, his abbot thought would do him good. I and mean, when he goes to Rome, however, and sees all of the, the corruption there and the sin in the church, and he is so appalled by this that how, how can the church these men of God be like this? And so he's he's appalled. So he returns. He tells his abbot about it, and his abbot um, tells him go and go and study theology. Maybe that'll help you. So he does. Um, another reason this abbot is actually kind of being pastoral. If if Luther is so uh, busy with studying theology, he can't be so busy thinking about the sins he's committed. So trying to get. Luther's mind off of his own internal struggles. So, Luther goes and studies theology, and at this point uh, in church history at the Roman church, um, you had to make yourself right with God, and you had to earn merits. And if you earn merits, you could make yourself right. But according to Luther and his own struggles, um, he knew that he was a sinner to the core, and no matter what he could do, he could just not get righteous enough. Now, he hasn't been converted yet, He's, he's but he understands that God demands righteousness, but Luther knows himself that he cannot be righteous. <clears throat> um, so Luther, after he studies theology, he begins writing what he felt were improper practices and beliefs of the church and how to deal with sin. Um, and so we start to get this is kind of the background to his nailing of the 95 Theses to the Church at Wittenberg. Um, the Pope at the time, Leo X, he had an extravagant taste for art, and he had practically bankrupt the Church with his projects, and one such project was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which Michelangelo had painted. Le- um, <clears throat> so he wants to build the Sistine Chapel up, make it elaborate, and he runs out of money. But there is a prince who had money, prince albert and he said he would give the pope money if albert could get a third bishopric so the pope would establish bishoprics around um, areas to individuals and this gave them not just spiritual power but temporal power as well because at this time the two become conflated Um, but canon law church law said that only uh, one person could have one bishopric and albert already had two and he wanted a third so you Immediately see the corruption going on here. Um, So Albert says, yeah, give me the third, and I'll give you the money. But, of course, Albert didn't have all the money up front. He needed to raise it. And so he has um, a monk named Johann Tetzel. And he would go around and sell indulgences. And indulgences where you could pay the church, and you could get either yourself time out of purgatory, or relatives by paying money into the church. And he came up with a jingle to get people to pay indulgences, kind of like one of the first salesmen, I guess. And here's his jingle. When the coin in the coffer springs, I sold from purgatory. When the coin in the coffer rings, I sold from purgatory springs. So <clears throat> here's his jingle, is going around, and people are paying this because they understand, okay, this is how I get my sins forgiven, this is how I can help my relatives who passed away get out of purgatory. These are what indulgences are um, So Luther is furious at this And he could not be silent anymore And October 31st, 1517 He nails his 95 theses to the church To the, to the door at the, at the castle of Wittenberg Now a lot of people think he's actually trying to stir up controversy But at this point in time Nailing up theses Or recommendations, if you will to the door in a public space was like, it was like a public bulletin board. You could put up, hey, I wanna talk about this, who would be willing to discuss this with me? So he wasn't trying to start anything, but he saw some problems that he thought should be addressed, let's get out in public and let's have a discussion about it. What happened though is that his students saw what he wrote, they pulled it off the door, they copied it, remember the printing press allowed for quick spread of ideas now, And they had it copied and printed and spread out through all Germany, and thus the Reformation starts. Um, The Theses, there's 95, they attack the sale of indulgences, abuses of the church, and the overreach of the papacy. One thesis said that if the Pope really cared about pardoning sin, so the Pope said, go and pay in indulgences and this will pardon sin for you. Luther says, if the Pope really cared about this, why didn't he just do it with his authority instead of making people pay for indulgences? Um, and so the 95 Theses start the Reformation. Yes. Okay, so the attack sale so indulgence abuses of the church, and the overreach of the papacy. Okay, so now I want to continue on Luther's life, and I, I'm going to try to frame it a certain way. So we've all, have you not heard about the five solas of the Reformation? Have you never heard of that before? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to frame Luther's re- life around the five solas of the Reformation. You'll see what I mean as I go on. Okay, so Luther, he's in that thunderstorm. He thinks he's going to die, and he cries out to a saint. And that doesn't cry out to God. He cries out to a saint. And at this time, actually, it's still going on, the uh, Roman church says you could pray to saints for help or deliverance, and you would pray to specific saints for help. And if I remember, St. Anne was the saint of minors, I think, which is what his father was, if I remember that correctly. That's why he reached out to St. Anne. Um, But Luther would come to see that this is ridiculous, that you can't cry out to saints for help. You can only cry out to God. And eventually from this, he would understand that Christ would be our only mediator, Um, not just in dealing with sin, but those who we could cry out to for help. And so. Our first sola, solus Christus, which means Christ alone. There is no other mediator between God and sinful humanity than Christ. He alone, based on life and work on the cross, grants access to the Father. Okay, so Luther would eventually come to understand Christ alone. He is our only mediator. And here is an account of his conversion. So as he's studying the scriptures more, he gets into reading the book of Romans. And as he does, um, God converts him. And here is his account. Could someone read that for me, please?
1: Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, it is in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. Unmark. And this is the meaning the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates.
0: So Luther, as he's reading Romans, he has this conversion experience, he understands that it's not his righteousness that makes him right with God, it's God's righteousness imparted to him, credited to him, that makes him and others right with God. God. <clears throat> so the righteous God's righteousness is credited to our account, and Luther understood this, and his heart had changed. He stopped hating God. He hated God because he is so demanding. I can never fulfill what he wants. I hate him. But then he realized, oh wait, God actually fulfills what he demands by giving us his righteousness. And so for Luther, this was a breakthrough. In his own heart and then would be a breakthrough in what he would start to write and how he informed the reformation and so through his conversion we get two more solas sola fide and sola gratia could someone read that for me the bottom paragraph
1: salvation is by grace alone through faith alone it is not by works we come to christ empty-handed this is the doctrine of justification of faith alone the cornerstone of the rest of the reformation
0: All right, so justification by faith alone. Through the means of faith in Christ, God God declares you a sinner as righteous. It is a legal term that you are declared righteous, even though you're not actually righteous, and God sees you through Christ as holy and and pure. And that's what Luther had recovered um, that was lost from the early church because of all these traditions and things that were heaping on that I went over the last three weeks, um, so Luther recovers justification by faith alone. Your Christ's righteousness has been accredited to your account. You are not actually righteous. And this is the difference between the Roman church and what Protestants now believe is that the Roman church, through the sacraments, you were made righteous. Grace was infused into you to make yourself righteous. Where Luther says, well, no, you are declared righteous. And then through sanctification, through the means of grace, we'll talk about later, that that's when you start to become like Christ. But at the start, your salvation is, you are declared righteous, even though you're still a sinner. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel. You're still a sinner, you still have sin, but God says, no, you're holy and clean and pure because of the work of Christ, because you are united to him. Well, that's what Luther understood, that's what he recovered, and that's what he would, um, all of his writings would be based upon this, and would inform the Reformation and how it, Spread and then began to um, affect the church, affect nation states, affect history. Um, let's see, I went through that. Okay, so Luther, he's writing on these things. Um, let's see. Okay, so he's writing on these things. It gets back to the authorities, and they don't like what he's saying because it undercuts the, the papacy. It's also against the Roman theology and uh they tell they basically tell they have there's a he goes through a series of debates with people and he he kind of outwits and outmatches all of their best theologians so they kind of bring it up the chain gets back to the pope gets the emperor and they call the diet of worms so it's like a council where they they want luther to stand before them explain his views but they really want him to recant or he's going to be declared a heretic and then be excommunicated so luther comes at the Diet of Worms, he's standing before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he's standing before some very high-ranking cardinals um, and people of the church, and they're basically interrogating him, and they're saying, are these your works? And they have his works before him, and they, these are yours, he says, yes, they're mine, and then they say, well, "Well, you recant these," and he kind of plays funny with them. Well, what do you mean? What what parts of them recant? And like, you know what I'm talking about? Recant, you know, these views that you have of justification, of um, your writings against indulgences, all that stuff. And Luther kind of breaks for a minute. Now, if you've ever re- read Luther's works, if you ever read, there's a guy on Twitter who actually um, takes Luther's uh, quotes and. Puts them on Twitter, and if you've ever read those, I think it's just Luther's tweets or something. Luther is very can be very very brutal. Now he's in a different time period than we are, and um, he's not very charitable sometimes. But the guy c- collects his tweets and and publishes like some of his like most scathing attacks on his enemies, and so he has been doing this for the whole throughout this period of time. And now he's confronted in person with his enemies, per se. And they ask him to recant. And he, he breaks a little bit. And he says, Can I have 24, 24 hours to think it over? So they give him that. He goes, prays for a while. Then he comes back the next day. And they say, Will you recant? And then one of his most famous uh, statements is made at the Diet of Worms. Someone read that for me, please.
1: Since then, your Imperial Majesty and your Lordships demand a simple answer. I will give you one without teeth and without horns. Unless I am convicted by, of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest evidence, I cannot and will not retract, for we must never act contrary to our conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen.
0: And so we get our next sola, sola scriptura. Scripture alone, that the scripture, the the Bible, is our final authority in all matters of life and godliness. The church looks to the Bible as the ultimate authority. So the Roman church, um, uh, scripture and tradition had authority. They had uh, equal authority in in some respects. Um, Luther says, no, councils can err, popes can err, but the scripture cannot, and therefore the scripture must be our final authority. And it doesn't mean we don't have other authorities. When I was a kid, I had to listen to my parents. My kid is supposed to listen to me, so we have other authorities. Uh, we have bosses, we have to listen to them. But um, in the final analysis, the final authority for for us as Christians is the scripture alone, not scripture plus church, and not scripture plus something else. The scripture alone is our final authority. And so Luther understood that, and His statement at the Diet of Worms reflects that, that Scripture is our final authority. And then we get to our final sola, soli deo gloria, to God be the glory alone. All of life can be lived for the glory of God. Everything we can and do should be done for His glory. So Luther, after he recants, they demonstrate this in the film. He's walking out of the Diet of Worms. Um, Some hooded figures kidnap him on the road and whisk him away. And it was actually his benefactor that whisks him away into hiding Um, because now at this point, Luther is a heretic. He's excommunicated excommunicated from the church. Um, If he goes before the authorities in public, uh, they're going to arrest him and probably kill him. So he's whisked away into Germany. He goes into hiding where he translates the Bible into the German language. And his translation actually shapes much of the German language today. And so this is a principle here that um, Wycliffe, that I talked about last week, had advocated for, that the scriptures should be in the common language of the people. So Luther is actually building on, on Wycliffe and his understanding of what the scriptures were for, and how they should be read by the people in their own language. So he translates the scriptures into German, and then he also starts writing, whatever you do as long as it is not a sinful profession is honoring to God. So we heard from Dennis this morning talk about the priesthood of all believers is that um, that works itself out in, in daily life, that you can be a minister, you can be a trash man, you can be an AV guy, you can be a teacher. And everything you do, all of that is honorable to God. There is no higher status of clergy. Clergy are no more righteous than the laity. That every um, task or job that we do, as long as it is not sinful, is honoring to God. And we can all do it as believers. And that would spark other ideas and um, weaken the, the influence and power of the institutional church. So Luther would write on that, and then that's where we get Sola Dea Gloria from, to God be the glory alone. And Luther would, um, through the priest of all believers, would point people back to God alone gets the glory, that everything we do should be for him. A side note, um, Johann Sebastian Bach, you guys know about that guy? Do you know how he would sign his compositions? SDG. SDG. Sola Dea Gloria. Okay, so a brief recap. The cornerstones of the Reformation justification through faith alone. You were declared righteous by God through the means of faith in Christ. Five souls of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and sola Dea Gloria. So, scripture alone tells us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You guys get that? All right, if you have any questions, please come up to me. This is really foundational for Reformed theology, for understanding the Gospel, even for your own Christian life. So i got to get through other Reformers, but if you have any questions, I would love to talk to you about this stuff. This is is where I'm like, this is my favorite week, so. (laughs) All right, more Reformers. Zwingli, he was a pastor in Switzerland, in Zurich. He actually preached through the entire New Testament. He basically starts, starts the Reformation through eating sausages. <clears throat> so, Lent, Roman Church had Lent at this time, too. And they said, you can only eat certain meats on certain days. And Zwingli said, I don't see this in the scriptures. You can't tell me what to do, what I can eat. This is, kind of gets back to the priest of all believers. He invites a whole bunch of people in defiance of this and has sausages. I can't remember the date. I wish I do, but when that date occurs, I make sure I have sausages. Remember, it's Zwingli. Um, Yes. (laughs) He was part of the Reformers' initiative to reduce the sacraments from seven, the Roman Church at seven, to two that we have today, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, Let's see. Okay. One of the sad things of the Reformation... So Zwingli had certain views of the Lord's Supper. Luther had different views. Calvin would have slightly different views than Zwingli. And these streams of Reformers, again, all of this is happening all around the same time. Some of these guys are being influenced by Luther. They would come after Luther. Some of these guys are actually starting to see this for themselves. And then they discover Luther and like, oh, okay. Remember because they're actually now reading, being able to read the Greek text for themselves. So some of them are building on Luther, some are coming um, to this on their own. There's some parallel things going on. A lot of this is going on at the same time throughout Europe. So anyways, um, these streams of reformers, they would come together in a meeting, and they would discuss the Lord's Supper amongst other things, and they were trying to come to an agreement on theological understanding. Where do we go from here? The reformers did not start out with trying to start their own church. That's why they were called reformers. They actually tried to reform the church. They wanted to stay within the church, but when the Roman Church, and we'll see in a little bit, didn't listen to them, they said, "Well, we have we have no we, we have nothing else to do. This is what the Scripture says. We believe it. We can't stay in this church. What do we do?" So they would have a meeting. Unfortunately, and one of the reasons why we have very, a lot of denominations today, they cannot come to an understanding on the Lord's Supper. That's kind of one of the failings of the Reformation. Luther was in one of his moods, and he was very friendly with Zwingli, but he wrote some scathing words about him um, after this meeting with their understanding of the Lord's Supper. So they depart, and you start to get two streams of Reformers, the Lutherans and the Reformed, and really begins at this meeting that they couldn't come to agreement on the Lord's Supper. All right, so that's Zwingli. We also have what are called radical reformers. So there are two types of reformers, the magisterial reformers and the radical. The magisterial reformers would be Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. They actually wanted to work with the state to reform the church, to set up their new church and whatever that looked like. They thought the state still played an important role in doing so. Um, But the radical reformers said, you reformers have not gone to the root. That's where radical means. You have not gone to the root yet. Um, we can't be doing stuff with the state because the state is, they're, they're persecuting us. They're, they're not listening to us. We need to go back to like very, very simple Christianity, almost like the house church movement, if you will. Um, some of these radical reformers were called Anabaptists, Anna meaning to be re-baptized. They felt that the those who were baptized in the Roman church as infants that was not a real baptism and so really only to become into the community of faith you had to be baptized upon a profession of faith and therefore you'd have to be re-baptized anabaptist that's where the term comes from uh menno simons is one of these reformers and he would start the mennonites and these were pacifists who wanted a separatist state jacob amon he split from the mennonites and his followers became known as the amish who would settle in the colony of Pennsylvania. Um, So a lot of these um, Anabaptists, these radical reformers, they were pacifists. They were separatists, like pretty hardcore separatists. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of these radical reformers were persecuted and martyred by the Roman Church and the Protestants, the magisterial reformed areas. So the Anabaptists got it from both sides. The Romans would martyr the Protestants and the Protestants would attack the Catholics and you get some religious wars and things coming out of this. Um, Again, this is like an upheaval in how people viewed society and civilization. Remember the Middle Ages, I said, they're trying to build a Christian civilization. When someone comes along and says, no, the Roman church can't do this, the scriptures say this, and this is how church should be, that creates a massive upheaval and there would be a lot of violence and struggle. Um, And eventually, though, there would be, I can't remember the date, a treaty, if you will, the Peace of Augsburg, where local princes could decide what their subjects would be, whether they'd be Roman Catholic or Protestant. And that was kind of an agreement that came after a lot of fighting to stop this fighting, where... This province over here will be Roman Catholic, and this one over here will be Protestant because of what the prince had decided. You see it at the, at the end of that Luther movie? That's what, which I don't like how that movie ends. It just, it kind of made the whole point about religious freedom instead of the recovery of the gospel. Um, but that is one of the things that come out of this where now you could actually have Protestant states or Protestant provinces, whereas before it was all just Roman Catholic, okay? All right. Another reformer, John Calvin. This guy is a beast. All right. Leading reformer in Geneva, which was a church-run city. (sighs) Let's see. He set up a church-run state in Geneva. Church-run state meaning the church had the spiritual power. It wasn't as tied into temporal power as the Roman church was. If the church determined that someone was heretical, then the state would impose its punishment on the person, not the church. The church would come to a conclusion about a person regarding spiritual matters, and then if the spiritual matters actually became a criminal matter, the state would take care of it. A lot of people say, no, the, the church would take care of these heretics. It was through the state that this happened. And it's hard for us as Americans to understand because we have separation church state and disestablishmentarianism and all that. But Geneva was a state-run church. But Calvin, he had a bunch of clash, clashes with the state-run people because they wanted to insert their authority into church matters, and he said, "Well, no, 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 no. You're not the church. You're not part of the church." So Calvin. He was called to Geneva, and then when he started to institute reforms and uh, basically tell the, the council of Geneva, you can't do this, they kicked him out. Eventually, he would uh, go to Strasbourg. Geneva started to come into struggles with people uh, coming to the church. They couldn't run it very well, and they called him back. And that's when Calvin was actually able to institute most of his reforms. and. From Geneva, people would come and study under Calvin and Beza and learn about the Reformed faith that um, these they're, they're trying to work out. They would come there because they wanted to study and learn. They would also come there as exiles, So we'll talk about in a moment, where um, some Protestants were now in, in Roman lands and they couldn't practice uh, their faith, and so they would come to Geneva as refugees, in a sense and they would study and, and learn under Calvin. And then, if they were able to, because now the land had changed from Roman Catholic back to Protestantism, which is what happened in England, they would take what they just learned in Geneva and go out and spread it. And from there, Reformed theology would have its genesis really in its birth and go out and spread through, throughout Europe through Geneva and Calvin's work there. Um, Calvin wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, This is volume 1 of 2. They want to bring both volumes. Small print. print. See? The interesting thing about this is his prefatory note, and the note is like 30 pages, is actually written to the king of France. So again, again, Calvin is a magisterial reformer. He still thinks the state has a role to play in, in the church. And what the Institutes is, is basically a systematic theology of Reformed reform theology. He would have many additions to this book. He would write it. He would expand upon it. The first one was pretty small, and then he would just continue and expand and expand. But it was written to the king. And the opening sentence of the Institutes, you've probably all heard, and it's a great foundational statement for all of us. And here it is, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So to have true wisdom, we need to know who God is, what He is like. We also need to know who we are, what we are like. And that's what the Institutes are trying to do. They, they go out and say, this is what God is like, this is who He is. And then they also say, this is who we are. We are sinners. We are totally depraved, but God is gracious and merciful and, and, and holy. And then he gets into, you know, Christ came, lived as a sinless person, died for our sins. He gets into um, the nature of the church. He gets into the Spirit. He's actually called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Um, so he gets into all of this, and so his institutes are still being read today. They have huge, still have a huge impact on um, our seminaries today and theologians today. If you've never read them, I would highly recommend you read the institutes. Just take a year to do it because it's so big. Um, so Calvin is spreading out Reformed theology. The exiles of places would come to him and study, and then return to their places. And one such exile was John Knox. He was a reformer in Scotland. <clears throat> he sets up what we know as Presbyterianism today, for the most part. Presbyterianism, in the simplest sense, just means elder-led, where the Roman church was Episcopalian, um, bishop-led, right? And then you have the third form of government, congregationalism, which would come a little bit later, um, people-led. So different forms of government um, so John Knox sets up Presbyterianism in Scotland. he says that the church has a true church has three marks: the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments and church discipline. Um, these three things make up a true church and if a church neglects any one of these things they are not doing what the church is supposed to do as commanded by Christ and Knox learns this from Calvin and expands upon it and writes about it. Um, so Knox would have a lot of battles <laughs> back and forth with the uh, monarchs, and especially England, and one in particular with the Roman Catholic Mary. So I'll talk about the English Reformation next week. But um, the in England you had you start to have uh, after Edward died, you'd have Mary come to the throne. So Edward was a proto-Protestant. They had Mary come to the throne who can't, couldn't stand Protestantism, so she'd start to martyr all the Protestants. But then she would die, and Elizabeth would come to the throne, and she'd be a, be a Protestant. Well, Knox was in Scotland performing his Reformation, if you will, and Mary didn't like it. But she says this about Knox. During the time of the 16th century Scottish Reformation, Knox's ministry of preaching and prayer were so well-known that the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, is reputed to have said, I fear the prayers of John Mo- Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. I always thought that was a fascinating quote. Uh, so Knox, is, is a, he was a man of prayer. Um, and you see Mary had almost, all, ab- almost absolute authority in England, and she still feels fears Knox and his prayers. Something, you know, something. I just find that really interesting, the, the background behind that. Um, to me, that's a, a uh, encouragement. Just like Luther, when you know you are right according to the scriptures and you have to go confront people on it, that God is the power behind you. And he's the one giving you the grace and able to do this. And Mary seemed to recognize that in Knox himself. All right, the last reformer, Peter Vermilli. Have any of you heard of this guy? That's what I thought. All right, he is another Italian. <clears throat> um, his early work as a reformer in Catholic Italy and his decision to flee for Protestant Northern Europe influenced many other Italians to convert and flee. Italy had a very small reformation in its country, obviously, because. The papacy is there. So the influence of the Roman Church is very great in Italy. It still is to this day. Um, And so any reformation in there would be next to near impossible. There was a very small one. It didn't really last too long. Um, But Vermilli is one of the forgotten uh, reformers. And uh, let's see. So he he went to uh, England. And when Queen Mary came to power, he had to flee. Um, But in England, here's what what he did and what he's remembered for that a lot of us seem to not know or forget. He actually influenced the English Reformation, including the Eucharistic Service 1552 Book of Common Prayer. So out of the English Reformation would come the Book of Common Prayer. I'll talk about that next week. But that had very, very Reformed doctrines in it for the most part and Vermeule was part of writing that because Thomas Cranmer, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, asked him to for his input. Um, he was considered an authority in the Eucharist on the Reformed churches. So, uh, the Reformed and the Reformers were trying to understand the Eucharist, and they had their own views, and he um, became widely read on his views for the Eucharist and what it, what it, what it did and what it was for. And he actually references Chalcedon, which I talked about, that Christ has one person and two natures, and he would refute other views, saying, no, they're not in line with Chalcedonian theology and the scriptures, that Christ is uh, one person and two natures. And so he would write on that and greatly influence the understanding of the Eucharist that we have today, especially in the English Reformation. His loci communes was a compilation of excerpts from his biblical commentaries organized by the topics of systematic theology, and it would become a Reformed standard theological textbook. He also taught the Bible at Oxford, and when Mary came to the throne, he was exiled, and he made his way to Zurich, where he taught until his death in 1562. Um, So I said his best-known contribution was defending the doctrine of the Eucharist, and Vermilli did not believe that the bread and wine are changed, so we talked about that last week. And the Lutheran view is that Christ is present in the sacrament, but he said, physically present, but he said, how could that be? Because human nature is not omnipresent. So I was getting to the Calistonian theology. I don't have time to get on to the theology, but he's basically saying that um, Christ remains in heaven but is received by believers. And there's a his rationale for that, because Christ retained His divine nature when He became human, the substance of the bread and wine remained the same. So, he's basically, what I'm trying to say is that he's pulling from church history, from Chalcedonian theology that the church had worked out, and how that has implications for the bread and the wine. So, I've already said he'd had a direct role in the Book of Common Prayer, but the last point there, some scholars think Vermily's theology was arguably more influential than that of Calvin. That was very surprising to me when I read that. I'm still trying to follow up on that claim. But one scholar says that because of this, his Loci communes became a standard textbook, and his edition of the English edition of his work was brought to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, where it was an important textbook at Harvard, which started as a seminary. And then most of Vermilly's works were found in the libraries of 17th century Harvard divinity students. More of his works were found than those of Calvin. So he's kind of a forgotten reformer who seemed to have massive influence, That, but he's still kind of forgotten or overshadowed by Calvin. I thought that was really interesting, so he's on my list to do more research for. Um, his works are also highly regarded by New England Puritan theologians John Cotton and Cotton Mather. So, primarily for the forgotten theologian that seems to have a lot of influence on Reformed theology, and now I'm going to fly through the Counter-Reformation so the reformers, they do their thing, they have their reformed views of things, and the Roman Church says, well, what are we going to do about all this? And the Roman Church actually would have some reforms of their own. And the Counter-Reformation, as it was known, they, they met and started a Council of Trent which lasted 18 years. Its primary purpose was to condemn and refute beliefs of Protestants and make Catholicism clear. It condemned justification by faith alone and affirmed the Apocrypha and affirmed transubstantiation. The Apocrypha are those Deuterocanonical books in between um, the Old and New Testament. And a lot of the doctrines from the Roman Church are actually in the. They're supported by uh, texts in the Apocrypha. And so they could not exclude the Apocrypha because a lot of their doctrine would come from them. And the Reformers said the Apocrypha is not scripture, though it is helpful, but the Roman Church was almost forced to say, well, it is Scripture. It is divine in origin. They rejected sola scriptura. That's obvious. Um, Adulgences were Reformed, but now they had actually made them official church doctrine. They affirmed the doctrine of purgatory. They affirmed celibacy for the clergy. And they also adopted the the Gregorian calendar, which we still use today. So that's kind of lost and forgotten at the Council of Trent. Um, Let me just read you one of their decrees, if you will. Let's see, right here. The Protestants claimed that the only source and norm for Christian faith was Holy Scripture. The doctrine of Sola Scriptura was rejected at Trent. The Council affirmed two sources of special revelation, Holy Scripture and traditions of the Church. And so you see that the Counter-Reformation, they already had all this in their practice and belief, but now they made it solid. They made it affirmative. They made it the actual position, the only position of the Roman Church, and it comes in reaction to the Reformation. The Roman Church couldn't really be said to be the Roman Church until after the Council of Trent. Remember I said a lot of doctrines and things that we look at today as to see the Roman Church they weren't the official teaching although they were the primary practice but once it become the official teaching you can't refute them anymore at your own risk of excommunication so the Roman Church that we see today really solidified itself at the Council of Trent and so the Council of Trent was in reaction to the Reformation all right closing up Reformation, we know it can't be forgotten. It recovered the gospel. Luther said that the church's true treasure is the gospel. And in studying the Reformation, we realize how easy it is for the church to add or take away from the gospel. So I don't have time for discussion like I wanted to, but here's a, here's a question for you to consider. Do we need a reformation today? My quick answer to that is, wherever the gospel is obscured, Yes whether that's in the church or even in our own hearts. Right theology re- leads to right worship and right practice. So Luther understood that the church was not worshiping God right because they had improper and poor theology. Right theology re- leads us to, should lead us to right worship and right practice. The doctrine of justification by faith alone and the five solas help us to live and have a right life, right worship, a right church, all for the glory of God. Any quick questions? <laughs> I talked way too much. All right, I wish I had a whole another hour for this, but I do not. All right, so yeah, just key points. The five solas and justification by faith alone, those are the cornerstones of the Reformation. The Roman church reacted strongly against it, had the Council of Trent, and the Roman church that we see today comes out of the Council of Trent. Um, you can read their decrees from, the tr- from Trent if you're interested in that, and you can see um, what they're reacting to that the Reformers said. Here I Stand by Bainton, probably the biography on Luther. So if you ever get a chance to read that, this is a really good one. And, yeah, I'm out of time, so. Uh, actually, could someone pray for us because I've been talking too much. <laughs> Ron, thanks
1: to well, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, being enlightened about history that uh, many of us either uh, not know about or have forgotten. So we appreciate Tim and his ability to uh, draw us to our attention. Thank you for the Christian Church and how it's developed over the years and how we stand on a, uh, perhaps the cusp of uh, something good could happen in our lives, through our lives, in this life today.